Yo, yo, yo. It is I once again, Sir Mac. I'm your boy Kush. And we're here again with another episode of Tales from the Kicks. Yes, we are. Yes, and, uh, we are. We're going to jump into the kicks. Yes, sir. Please let us know because I did have a lot of questions earlier, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I pulled these out, his facial expressions went question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. I was like, mm-hmm. yeah. That's why I like pulling these out every once in a while. Because you all pass by. And the best part about these droids, people trip out because they vans. I trip not literally, yeah. They vans. But they trippy. Because they did DIY vans. Yeah, they did a collab with a... I ain't even going to try to pronounce dude name because it's, <laughs> it's a foreign language. <laughs> But yeah, they do collabs with him. He, if you a Vans fan, you know it's a Taka Hashi, Hey Hashi, Taka something. Don't even look at me. But look, the the shoe is fire because it comes with all these different patches. Mm-hmm. It comes with a patch for the tongue. It comes with a patch for the sides. You could put the patches on there however you feel like it. You got the swiggle vans on the they put the swivel on there and stuff. The back tab on there, you know, you customize just about every part of it because the hose you made out of Velcro, or they say uh, that lock and tie pattern or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. But uh, yeah, so it's basically all Velcro patches and Velcro everything. And you just Velcro it, stick it on, stick it off. But you can just rip it on and. Put it off. And I like it because it really sticks. It's not like you see how hard it is for that thing yeah, to come off. Like you gotta, you gotta have some muscle on it. You ain't just gonna get it off real simple. Like so, I ain't no worries when you wearing them, or if you skate in them. You know, because some people skate in their vans. I don't skate, but I do wear my vans. You can tell where these a few. I like those. I like those now. See how hard was that? How hard was what? Nothing. How hard is it to like a pair of ads? It's not hard. <laughs> it's not hard at all. Come look at the ones I got. You're going to love them. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> and um, I really like this shoe. I really, I really, really like this shoe. Because it's so comfortable. It's a high top. The high top old school van. What is that? The half cab? Yeah, the half cab. That's what they call it. That's what Vans call it. So if you wear Vans, you know, part of the Vault series. And uh, mm-hmm. they get a 10 out of 10 for me on this one because this this shoe, the way you can customize it, they give you a whole bunch of different laces. They give you a whole bunch of different patches. They give you a whole bunch of just coloring. And, like, the creativity can just flow. It doesn't really matter. The creativity can just flow. And if you want to keep it basic, they give you the patches so you can make the simple basic colorway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I it's, like it. it's still like a couple it. of them patches that they threw in there to be like, do something with this. You know what I mean? Like you gotta figure it out. But it's fine. I like it. I enjoy them. All right, all right. Who do we have accompanying the shoe? And accompanying the shoe today is one single pop, one lone pop, but not just any pop. It's the black light Chucky. Your dick. And uh, 
I like I like I really really like this pop. <laughs> I like both of these items up here today a lot. Okay, okay, this is a good choice. I like yeah, this. this. I like this. And then and it's crazy because I actually the color combination from the black light on there and the, mm. the shoe regular like they actually kind of match a little bit. I'm sitting here looking at it like mm, that actually kind of go together. He but said that actually goes together. But yeah, I got the black light <laughs> Chucky pop. It's uh. It's fire. He got the little knife in his hand. He got the stitching on his face. It's fire, Pop. Fire. I highly suggest if you're in the Pops, you should get one. You should go grab you one. And check out for the Blacklight series because the Blacklight series is going crazy right now. That's what I I actually saw a TikTok about that. That shit, them shits are like going out there now. Yeah, they, they're out there. So I suggest you get, get what you want because... After they go, I feel like the price on them are going to go up. They're going to skyrocket. They're going to skyrocket. Skyrocket. It was already going up for some of them. Because, like, Maleficent, kind of hard to find now. Um, them Jack the Skeletons, I know people was buying them up. It's it's crazy out there. Nothing's safe. Nothing is safe. You're right. So, with that being said, what is the tale for today? Today, our tell takes us to good old California. California. <laughs> Edmund Kemper. All right. Um, I do believe they made a movie about him. Mm-hmm. It was like in uh, 2008. Now, he was born in Burbank, California, December 18th, 1948. All right, so he was, he had three siblings, well, he had two siblings, and he was the middle child, and um, his family was the basic, you know, his father was a military person, and the wife was just a stay-at-home mom, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like the good old little, little little picture or whatever. He was, a, he was a big kid. He was a big kid. He was weighing 13 pounds when he was born. And then by the age four, he was a head taller. He was a head taller than all the other kids. Wow. He's going yeah. pretty fast. Now, early on in his age, he started to exhibit antisocial behavior, such as torture of insects and cruelty to animals. This is all around the, all around the age of four, and he's already doing this. Wow. Now, at the age of 10, he decided to bury a pet cat alive. He dug it up, decapitated it, and mounted its head on a spike. Wow. Kemper later stated that he derived pleasure from successfully lying to his family about killing the cat. This dude, he just don't care. When he was just 13, he killed another family cat when he felt it was favoring his younger sister. Wow. And not only that, he used to keep pieces of it in the closet until his mom found it. Wow. That's... That's... That's nasty. Yeah. Ain't nothing to it. That's fucked up. That's wild. Kemper, with the type of mindset he has, 
I had already started having like a real dark fantasy life. He performed rites with his uh, younger sister's dolls that culminated in removing their heads and hands. Holy shit. And on one occasion when his elder sister teased him and asked, why are you doing this? And he replied, if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first. What the fuck? Hell no. That's that's what I'm saying. He also recalled that, you know, as a young boy, he would sneak out of the house and armed with his, like, father's bayonet, like, the big old knives and shit. Mm -hmm. He went to his second grade teacher's house to watch her through the windows. (sighs) Okay. He then stated in some later interviews that some of his favorite games to play as a child were gas chamber and electric chair. This is where he asked his younger sister to tie him up and flip an imaginary switch. He would then like um, tum- like tumble over and ride on the floor pretending that he was being executed by the gas or the electric shock. What? Who allowed this? Where are the parents? They they not paying attention. No. How is that even a game? That don't even sound. That ain't. That don't sound like that ain't no game. That's something that he made up. That's not a game. <laughs> That's not a game. He also had a near death experience too. So, um, basically, <laughs> he fell into the pool and he he almost drowned. What? Now, I say he fell, but in reality, his sister ended up uh, trying to push him in front of a train, and then they ended up going to a swimming pool, and she pushed him over. Wait, what? Yeah. He tried to push him into a real train? Yeah, so she tried She tried to kill him twice. Okay, so where was this pool that it was that close to the train where he could avoid the train but fell into the pool? These were two separate occasions. Oh. Yeah, my well, bad. Didn't I, I, didn't cl- I didn't clarify that. My bad. I didn't clarify that. He did have, like I said, he did have the near-death experiences. Twice with his sister when she tried to push him in front of a train, and then the other one when she pushed him off the deep end, resulting in him drowning. Well, where he almost drowned. Okay. Is is that, did I clear that up? Almost. Continue. Thank, thank you. Kemper did have a close relationship with his father and was devastated when his parents ended up divorcing in 1957, causing him to be raised by Clarnell in Helena, Montana. Yeah. Those are some names. (laughs) Helena, Clarnell, Montana. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. He had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mother, though. A neurotic, domineering alcoholic who frequently belittled, humiliated, and abused him. Clarnell often made her son sleep in a locked basement because she feared that he would harm his sisters. Regularly mocked for his size, he is now standing at 6 foot 4 inches tall by the age of 15. She needs Mm -hmm. him back up. They began to call him like a real. They began to call him uh, names and everything, you know, like the little basic names, like "Oh, you're a freak" or "weirdo." You know uh, what I mean? Yeah, because he's so tall and so big. Yeah. Gotcha. So, 
in a when he had a phone conversation with his father, she was unaware that the son was uh, eavesdropping. She also refused to show him affection out of fear that she would turn him gay and to the younger to and told the young camper that he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. Wow. Kemper later described her as a sick, angry woman, and it has been postulated that she had borderline personality personality disorder. Of course. Mm-hmm. Now, at the age of 14, Kemper ran away from home in an attempt to reconcile with his father. He went back to Cali, Van Noyes to be exact. Van Noyes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Once there, he learned that his father had remarried and had a stepson. Kemper stayed with his father for a short while until the elder Kemper sent him to live with his paternal grandparents, who, who lived on a ranch in the foothills of Sierra Nevada on Road 224, two miles west of Northfolk. Oh, wow. He, ha- he hated it living up there and described his grandfather as senile, and said that his grandmother was constantly emasculating me and my grandfather. So, like, he he said that's how he was being treated to the reporter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then um, he made friends for a short while with um, somebody named David Mike Dozier. Who only lived a short distance away and was about the same age. But according to Dozier and his mother, Elena... He stopped spending time with Kemper, whom he called Guy, after Dozier's cat and Elena's pillowcase went missing. Dozier disavowed any knowledge of what happened to the cat and the pillowcase, and as a curiosity, he gave his future his future wife a fifty-cent piece that had the eye of the eagle precisely drilled out by Kemper. Damn. On August twenty-seventh, nineteen sixty-four. At the age of 15, Kemper was sitting at the kitchen table with his grandmother, Maud Matilda Huey Kemper. There go them names. Yeah, them, them, them names, them, them names, some names. When they had an argument, in rage, Kemper stormed, uh, stormed off and retrieved a rifle that his grandfather had given him for hunting. The rifle had been confiscated because he used it to needlessly shoot animals. He then re-entered the kitchen and fatally shot his grandmother in the head before firing twice more into her back. Shit. What's even worse was his grandmother's last words were, Oh, you better not be shooting the birds again. Damn, she ain't even know She ain't, she ain't know. Some accounts mention that she has suffered multiple post-mortem stab wounds with the kitchen knife. And when uh, Kemper's grandfather... Returned from grocery shopping, Kemper went outside and fatally shot him in the driveway next to his car. He was so unsure of what to do next, so he ended up calling his mom, and she told him, just call the police. So Kemper Kemper went ahead and did, and he waited to be taken into custody. Now, after his arrest, Kemper said that he just wanted to see what it felt like to kill Grandma, and testified that he only killed his grandfather... So he would not have to find out that his wife was dead and that he would be angry with Kemper for what he'd done. Psychiatrist Donald Lunde, who interviewed Kemper during adulthood, wrote, In his way, he had avenged rejection of both his father and his mother. Kemper's crimes uh, were deemed incomprehensible for a 15-year-old to commit, 
and court psychiatrists diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia. At this time, he was sent to Atascostero State Hospital, a maximum security facility in San, San Luis Obispo County that houses the mentally ill convicted. So at this at this um, state hospital, California Youth Authority psychiatrists and social workers disagreed with the court psychiatrist's diagnosis. Their reports stated that Kemper showed no flight of ideas. So, like, there's no interference with the thought, no expression of delusions or hallucinations, and no evidence of bizarre thinking. They also believed, they also observed him to be intelligent and introspective, initially testing his IQ at 136. Damn. Over two standard divisions above average. He was re-diagnosed with a less condition, less like a less severe condition, personality trait disturbance, passive aggressive type. That's that's a lot. Uh, yeah. Later on in his time there at the mental hospital, he took another IQ test. Which gave a higher test result of 145. So he went from 136 when he was initially um, at Atascardo, the mental health hospital. And now, after the second time, he got a 145. So Kemper endeared himself to his physiatrist by being a model prisoner. He was trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. One of his psychiatrists later said that he was a very good worker and that this is not a typical of a sociopath. Like this doesn't this doesn't show signs of a of a, a sociopath because he's I feel like he's putting on a facade. You know what I mean? Yeah. He really took pride in his work, but Kemper also became a member of the JCs while in the state hospital and claimed to have developed some new tests and some new scales on the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, specifically an overt hostility scale. And during his work with the mental uh, psychiatrist, he was then on his second arrest. He was able to convince them and everything. And now after his second arrest, Kemper said that being able to understand how these tests functioned allowed him to manipulate his psychiatrist and meeting, admitting that he learned a lot from the sex offenders to whom he administered tests. They told him that to avoid leaving witnesses, it was best to kill a woman after raping her. Damn. That shit there. Now, this is his, you know, release and time between um, the certain events that are going to occur. On December 18, 1969, his 21st birthday, Kemper was released on parole from the state hospital. Against the recommendations of many psychiatrists at the hospital, he was released into the care of his mother, Clarnell, who had remarried 
taking the surname Strandberg and then divorced again. Damn. He is back in Aptos, California, a short drive from where she worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California. Kemper later de- demonstrated further to his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated. And on November 29, 1972, his juvenile records have permanently expunged. Holy shit. Now, this is the last report from his uh, probation psychiatrist. If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we're dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, who was free of any psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made a very excellent response for the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be of any danger to himself or to any member of society. And since it may allow him more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it reasonable to have a permanent expunction of his juvenile records. So this psychiatrist basically said... I don't see a reason why basically what he just did is not going to be on record anymore. The psychiatrist considered and determined that they don't see any reason to why his records can't be expunged. Wow. Yeah, that that shit's up there. While staying with his mother, Kemper attended community college in accordance with his parole requirements and had hoped to become a police officer, although he was rejected because of his size. At the time of his release from the state hospital, Kemper stood 6 feet and 9 inches tall, which led to the nickname Big Ed. Wow. Kemper maintained relationships with Santa Cruz police officers despite his rejection to join the force and become a self-described friendly nuisance at a bar called the Jury Room. So he's he out there trying to get his little little drink on, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Kemper worked a series of series of menial jobs before gaining employment with the State of California Division of Highways. He was damn, that's crazy. He was part of like the deal. Is it the DOT? Department of Traffic or something. But anyway, during this time. Oh yeah, the DOT. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like Texas dot, Moda. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Department of Tech, uh, Mm -hmm. traffic. During this time, his relationship with his mother remained toxic and hostile. The two having frequent arguments that their neighbors often overheard. Kemper, Kemper later described the arguments he had with his mother. And this time, stating, My mother and I started right in on horrendous battles. Just horrible battles, violent and vicious. I've never been in such a vicious verbal battle with anyone. It would go to fist with a man, but this was my mother, and I can't stand the thought of my mother and I doing these things. She insisted on it, and just over stupid things, like they would argue. And he said he's he remembers one roof razor was over with, over weather. She should have her teeth cleaned. 
Wow. <laughs> when he had saved enough money, Kemper moved out to live with a friend in Alameda. There, there he still complained of being unable to get away from his mother because she regularly phoned him and paid him surprise visits. He often had financial difficulties, which resulted in this frequency returning to his mother's apartment in Aptos. So he's just bouncing all over the place. Yeah. At a Santa Cruz beach, Camper met a student from Turlock High School to whom he became engaged to in the March of 1973. The engagement was broken off after Camper's second arrest and his fiancée's parents requested her name to not be revealed by the public. That same year... The same year that he had begun working for the highway division, Kemper was hit by a car while riding a motorcycle that he had just bought. His arm was badly injured in the crash, and he ended up receiving $15,000, which equivalent to, you know, back then, it was ninety. It was valued at $91,563. Wow. Settlement in the civil lawsuit he filed against the car's driver. His lawyer was able to get him all of that and everything. As And as he was driving around in the 1969 Ford Galaxy, he noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking and began storing plastic bags, knives, blankets, and half cuffs in his car. He then began picking up young women and peacefully letting them go. And according to Kemp, according to Kemper, he picked up around 150 hitchhikers before he felt any homicidal sexual urges, which he called his little zapples. This motherfucker said little zapples. Little, little, za- little zapples? Little zapples? That sound like a rapper, right? You said zapples, right? Zapples. Zapples. Yeah, that does sound like a rapper. <laughs> sound like a rapper that didn't make it far. Nope. Guess he couldn't find his pairs, you know what I'm saying? Couldn't find an A in his first name. <laughs> now he was all fucked up from the front. He had a Z. He, he got a, yeah, that's 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 a dead end right there. <laughs> why would you do that why to Why are you a Zappo? Right? Why are you is it cuz you're sour? Like you think you're sour? <laughs> I feel like if something was a zapple, like sour meaning evil. I don't, I don't, I feel like the first part of that will very be much implicated. Zap. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't funny. <laughs> Between May 1972 and April 1973, Kemper killed eight people, all women. He would pick up female students who were hitchhiking and take them to isolated areas where he would shoot, stab, smother, or even strangle them. He would then take their bodies back to his home where he decapitated them, performed erumatio on their severe on their severed heads. Duh, this is this is that's that's crazy. And then he had sexual intercourse with their corpse. Oh my god. And then dismembered them. He had no respect for life. (laughs) Right? During this 11-month murder spree, Kemper killed five college students. 
one high school student, his mother, and his mother's best friend. Kemper has stated in interviews that he often searched for victims after having arguments with his mother and that she refused to introduce him to women attending the university where she worked. He recalled, she would say, you're just like your father. You don't deserve to get to know them. Psychiatrist and Kemper himself have espoused the belief that the young women were surrogates for his ultimate target, his mother. Of course. Mm-hmm. It's just, there's just a lot, you know what I'm saying? Like, he's doing a lot already. Like, this is, this is ridiculous, you know what I mean? Yes. On May 7th, 1972, on May 7th, 1972, Kemper was driving in in Berkeley when he picked up two 18-year-old hitchhiking students from Fresno State University, Marianne Pessy and Anita Mary Luchessa, with the pretense of taking them back to Stanford University. After driving for an hour, he managed to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda, with which he was very familiar from his work with the highway department. Hmm. Without alerting his passengers that he had changed directions from where they wanted to go, it was there that he handcuffed Pessy and locked Luchessa in the trunk, then stabbed and strangled Pessy to death, subsequently killing Luchessa in a similar manner. Damn. Kemper later confessed that while handcuffing Pessy, he brushed the back of his hand against one of her breasts and it embarrassed him. Adding that he said, whoops, I'm sorry, or something like that, after grazing her breast despite murdering her minutes later. What the fuck? This is crazy. Kemper put both of the women's bodies in the trunk of his Ford Galaxy and returned to his apartment. He was stopped on the way by a police officer for having a broken taillight, but the officer did not detect the corpses in the car. Kemper's roommate was not home, so he took the bodies into his apartment where he photographed and had sexual intercourse with the naked corpses before he decided to dismember them. He then put the body parts into plastic bags, which he later abandoned near Loma Prita Mountain. Before disposing of Pessy and Luchessa's severed heads in a ravine, Kemper engaged in an arumatio. A what? It's a blowjob. Oh. With both of them. Wow. In August of that year, Pessy's skull was found on Loma Prieta Mountain after an extensive search failed to turn up the rest of Pessy's remains or a trace of Luchessa. On the evening of September 14, 1972, Kemper picked up a 15-year-old down student named Akiko, who had decided to hitchhike to dance class after missing her bus. He again drove to a remote area where he pulled a gun on Ko before accidentally locking himself out of his own car. However, Ko let him back inside despite the fact that he had a gun Still in the car. Wow. So she, back inside the car, he proceeded to choke. He proceeded to choke her unconsciously, rape her, and then killed her. 
Kemper subsequently packed Cole's body in the trunk of his car and went to a nearby bar to have a few drinks, then returned to his apartment. He later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened the truck, admiring his catch like a fisherman. Back at his apartment, he had sexual intercourse with the corpse, then dismembered and disposed of the remains in a similar manner as his previous two victims. Cole's mother called the police to report the disappearance of her daughter and put up hundreds of flyers asking for information, but she did not receive any responses regarding her daughter's location or status. Damn. On January 7th, 1973, Kemper, who had moved back in with his mother, was driving around the Cabrillo College when he picked up 18-year-old student Cynthia Ann Shaw, a.k.a. Cindy. He drove to a wooded area and fatally shot her with a 22 caliber pistol. He then, just like everybody else, put her body in the trunk of his car and drove to his mother's house where he kept her body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. You wouldn't that sneak? Wouldn't that stink? That's nasty. When his mother left for work the next morning, he had sexual intercourse with and removed the bullet from Shaw's corpse, then dismembered and decapitated her in the mother's tub. Kemper kept Shaw's severed head for several days, regularly engaging in a ratio with it, then buried it in his mother's garden facing upward toward her bedroom. After his arrest, he stated that he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. He discarded the rest of Shaw's remains by throwing them off a cliff over the course of following weeks. All except Shaw's head and right hand were discovered and pieced together like a Macrombie jigsaw puzzle. A pathologist determined that Shaw had been cut into pieces with the power saw. He put he put the head in the garden so that it could look up at his mother. Wow. On February 5th. 1972 after a heated argument with his mother Kemper left his house in search of more possible victims with heightened suspicion of a serial killer preying on hitchhikers in the Santa Cruz area students had been advised to accept rides from only the cars with the university sticker on them Kemper was able to attain such a sticker and as his mother worked at UCSC he encountered 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe and her friend 20-year-old Alice Helen on the UCS campus. According to Kemper, Thorpe entered entered his car first, reassuring Leo to also enter. He fatally shot Thorpe and then Leo with his pistol and wrapped their bodies in blankets. He decided to bring them back to his mother's house, beheaded them in his car, and carried the headless corpse into his mother's house to have sexual intercourse with them. He then dismembered the bodies, removed the bullets to prevent identification, and discarded the remains the very next morning. Some remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later, and more were found near the Route 1 in March. When questioned in an interview as to why he decapitated his victims, he explained, The head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brains, the eyes, the mouth. That's the person I remember being told as a kid. You cut off the head and the body dies. 
The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Wow. That's intense. On April 20th, 1973, after coming home from a party, 52-year-old Clarnell Elizabeth awakened her son with her arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Kemper enter her room and said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Kemper replied, Nope. Good night. He then waited for her to fall asleep. Then he sneaked back into her room to bludgeon her with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a penknife. Wow. He then decapitated her and engaged in a remacio with her severed head, then used it as a dartboard. What the fuck? Kemper's. How is he doing all of this? He's big as fuck, dude. He's big as fuck. Nobody's stopping him. Kemper stated that he put her head on the shelf and screamed at it for an hour and threw darts at it. And ultimately, he smashed her face in. He says that seemed appropriate as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. Kemper hid his mother's corpse in a closet and went to drink at a nearby bar. Upon his return, he invited his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When Helen arrived, Kemper strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Hallett had gone away together on vacation. <laughs> he subsequently put Hallett's corpse in a closet obscured any outward signs of uh, any disturbance and left a note to the police. It read approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete. Gents, just a lack of time. I got things to do. Oh, my God. <laughs> After Kemper fled the scene, he drove nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine, taking caffeine pills to stay awake for over 1,000-mile journey. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car, and believed he was the target of an active manhunt. After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother and Hallett when he arrived in Pueblo, he found a phone booth and called the police. He confessed to the murders of his mother and Hallett, but the police did not take his call seriously and told him to call back at a later time. Oh, my God. That's fucking wild. What? Several, hour later, several hours later, Kemper called again, asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. He confessed to that officer killing his mother and Hallett, then waited for the police to arrive and take him into custody. Upon his capture, Kemper also confessed to the murders of the other six students. He was asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, and Kemper said the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end here, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing, and at the point of near exhaustion... Near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. He turned himself in because he was tired. 
That shit is some shit I just won't understand. Kemper Kemper was indicted on eight counts of first degree murder on May 7th, 1973. He was assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County attorney Jim Jackson. Due to Kemper's explicit and detailed confession, his counsel only his counsel's only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the charges. Of course. Kemper twice tried to commit suicide in custody but was unsuccessful. His trial went all the way to October 23, 1973. Wow. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found Kemper to be legally sane. One of the psychiatrists, Dr. Joel Fort, investigated his juvenile records and the diagnosis that he was once psychotic. Fort also interviewed Kemper, including Truth Serum, and relied to the, and relayed to the court that Kemper had engaged in cannibalism, alleging that he sliced flesh from the legs of his victims, then cooked and consumed them, the strips of flesh in a casserole. Wow. Nevertheless, Fort determined that Kemper was fully cognizant in each case and stated that Kemper enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled a murderer. Kemper later recanted the confession of cannibalism. So he ended up telling him, like, no, I lied. California used the M. Niden standard, which held, that, which held that for a defendant to establish a defense on the ground of insanity, it must be clearly proved that at the time of the committing act, the party accused was laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of mind and not to know the nature and quality of the act he or she was doing, or, if he did know it, that he did not know he was doing what was wrong. Kemper appeared to have known that the victims because he wanted them for himself, like possessions, in his own words, and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could have been committed only by someone with an aberrant mind and two beings inhabiting his body, and then when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out. Okay. Yep. On November 8, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. He, oh, asked, for the def- he asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. Whoa. You remember when he was little? Yeah. And he played that game, Electric Car and Gas Chamber and all that? So this was like his time to shine. Like He wanted that. However, with the moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count with these terms to be served concurrently and was sentenced to California Medical Facility in Vacaville. As he should. As he should, sir, yes. Now, in the California Medical Center uh, facility, Kemper was incarcerated in the same prison blocks as other notorious criminals such as Herbert Mullen and Charles Manson. Kemper showed particular disdain for Mullen, who committed his mother's murders at the same time and in the same area as Kemper. 
What he described fuck? Moulin as just a cold-blooded killer, killing everybody he saw for no good reason. Kemper ended up manipulating and physically intimidated Moulin, who was standing at a whopping five foot nine inches, was more than a shit for a foot shorter than Kemper. Kemper remains in the general population in prison, and uh, despite his many years of just being a prom, like I don't want to say a promised inmate because what he did was a fucking piece of shit, but you know what I mean. Yeah, no. But despite of his many years of good behavior, um, they said that there is not a chance that he will ever see. The outside of a prison ever again. Oh, shit. And he tells society that he has come to peace with it as this is where he will die. Okay. Yep. Ed Kemper, ladies and gentlemen, and if you wanted to see the movie, the movie is Kemper, the co-ed killer. It was released in 2008, rated R. You have any questions, sir? This shit was wild. I'm telling you. That, that, is, that is one hell of a tale. Thank you. Thank you. That is one hell of a tale. And it just, it just kept going. Like, there was just no stopping that. He didn't want to be stopped. You know what I mean? Yeah, I see that. Uh. <laughs> he committed a lot of murders, and he is a bad guy. Yeah. Now, I, I just don't understand how. And it's usually if haven't you, have you noticed a pattern now with the serial killers? They all some majority of them all have a high IQ. That kills me. They always have a high they, IQ, but they always choose to do the worst things with it. Exactly. That's why I was like, I just I don't I don't get it. You know what I mean? So that's why I'd be like, I, I don't know. I don't I don't understand. I do not understand either, Sir Mac. I do not get it. And I don't know why people do these types of things. And if you wonder why we have brought out Chucky in the vans, it's because vans started in California. And Chucky took a trip there. In the movie Seat of Chucky. Loved it. Yeah. Gotta end it on the lighter note because that was that was heavy. Yeah. Heavy. If you haven't seen Seat of Chucky, I've seen every single Chucky movie. Well, yeah. I, I, I fuck with Chucky heavy. If you're like at least an 80s and 90s baby, you should have seen. But what kills me is, Chuckies. how do you get killed by a dog? It's a man and a dog. You know, there's a lot of movies about dogs mm-hmm. fucking shit up. So, I don't think you want to go poking around at that. Mm, you know what? You're right. What do you what do you always say? Don't come over here summoning people? Yeah. Yeah, see? We ain't gonna do that. I ain't doing that. But that is my tale, sir Mac. Ladies and gentlemen, Edmund Kemper. Thank you for listening and uh hope you enjoyed the story. I did. It was I mean not I'm not I don't I don't enjoy what he did, but I enjoyed learning about him. Yes, I definitely enjoyed learning about it. It was a good, it was a good little tale. 
And I like how the Vans and the Chucky just mesh with the story. Yeah, I'm glad it did. Because, like I said, I really like these. Mm -hmm. I really like this combo. This is a nice combo. I have to set this up somewhere. I like the patches. No, the patches are crazy. And I'm, when I say there's so many patches, you get so many different ways you could have went with it. It's crazy. Where do you find them at? Um, online. Oh. You just got to look. You got to really, really look. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. But uh, thank y'all for listening. And uh, thank y'all for keep tuning in. And we're just going to keep dropping them. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Once again, I am Sir Mac. I'm your boy, Kush. This has been another Tales from the Kicks, and we are I. Bye.